0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to ECFR Russia podcast titled The Overcoat. The Overcoat, as many of you know, is reference to Nikolai Gogol's uh, famous story about a small Russian bureaucrat whose dream is to have a good overcoat, uh, and then he loses it. And our thinking is that captures a lot about Russian realities today and allows us to discuss multiple Russia-related topics under this headline. Uh, Today's podcast, however, is very close to original uh, topic by Gogol. We are going to discuss Russian bureaucrats and Russian uh, state system. And I have two excellent guests for that. With me is Mikhail Komin, who is ECFR visiting fellow, and Ekaterina Shulman, one of the most famous uh, Russian um, political scientists, right? So, Ekaterina, you are based in Berlin now. What exactly
1: are you doing? I'm trying to continue my work as a teacher and a political scientist in the face of being declared a foreign agent by the Ministry of Justice in my own country. So I'm a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Russian Eurasia Center, Berlin, and a visiting scholar at the Freie University, also in Berlin, as well as a professor in Kazgu. Uh, law university in Astana. These are some of my uh, current engagements. So basically, it's the same thing, but in different countries and sometimes in different language. Fantastic.
0: Well, mm, I'm sorry about Russia, but Berlin is definitely lucky to have you, that I must say.
1: Uh, Berlin is definitely becoming the hub of Russia studies and Russia knowledge across Europe. It has always been rather a capital of Russian studies, but now it's becoming the capital. Indeed, and Mikhail, say a few words of introduction as
0: well. You have actually appeared in our podcast, so uh, seasoned listeners uh, should know you well already. But uh, anyway, for Rose, for me, to first time, you are based in Vienna.
2: Yeah, I'm based in Vienna and I'm a visiting fellow in the European Council of Foreign Relations. But before I was involved in working in Moscow, in Moscow-based think tanks, Uh, our last think tanks named um, Center for Advanced Governance. And we support Russian bureaucracy, which is the topic of our discussion, uh, to perform some changes that we, they would like to do. So we usually, we name it the approach which we try to provide uh, among Russian agencies, among Russian government agencies, I mean, so this is evidence-based policy making. So we try to um, push them to use data when they would like to uh, do their decision-making.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, you both have had personal experiences with Russian bureaucracy and state system. So Maybe maybe let's start with that. Uh, tell us how it feels to to work uh, in, in, in Russian state system.
1: Ekaterina, you have worked in Tula region. Um, it was actually my first job when I was 18. I began as a municipal servant. And then in a few years, I moved to Moscow and started working in the state Duma, where I was on Different positions till um, two thousand six. So my personal relations with the Russian bureaucracy uh, actually ended in that year, but I still keep the proud title of the counselor of the State Service of Russian Federation of the first class.
0: Tell us more.
1: How was it?
0: How was it in Tula? How was it in State Duma? I mean, State Duma civil servants, I I would occasionally see. I I used to visit State Duma as a journalist quite a lot. Uh, around the turn of the century, um, and yes, and I actually I also used a lot the canteen of the upper chamber of the
1: parliament because I lived basically next door, and that uh-huh. was a... the upper chamber canteen was supposed to be better than the lower chamber one, so some of the state Duma people used to work this kind of ant line during the break to go to the federation council and uh, visit the canteen.
0: I can confirm
1: it it was better.
2: Yeah, I, I can confirm too, yeah, yeah. It it, it it not was better. It was better before the war too, because last time when I was uh in Federal Council it was maybe December 2021 and Cantine was really, really good, yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think things have changed. I mean for me it was easy to enter it with my journalist accreditation. Uh it really was no hassle at all. Later, we visited it once more uh, with ECFR delegation. I think it was 2018. We went to see Sergei Kislyak. And then, of course, it was metal detectors, uh, document checks, quite time-consuming procedure. So, you know,
1: you wouldn't just go for lunch. When, when I started working in the state room in 1999, I think this whole security thing was already emerging because of the terrorist threat uh, and then the che- Chechen war and then came... Uh, 9-11 and it all was ramped up so it went from easy to to not so easy but then again I had this little red book my my own um, personal ID so I could enter. And what is tell us a few stories about your job and your colleagues Um,
0: what are these people like working for state tumor for instance what what motivates them personally is it you know, is it opportunistic motivation, trying to get closer to to power and bribes and so forth, or is it um, is it idealistic uh, desire to make uh, Russia a better place?
1: You should remember that my personal experience as a civil servant came in a very specific historical period. As I said, I left in 2006. After that, I was a lot in the Duma, but as an outside observer, a consultant, an analyst, uh, a scientist, or as a teacher uh, who came with a group of students to show them uh, the Russian parliament. And in, in the early zero years, there were not that much bribes going around, specifically in the State Duma. And since it was a parliament, it was a rather motley collection of people. Many of them just came with their deputies, with their political fractions, and served those people. So there was not much, um, b- not much bureaucratic about them. My last position, though, in the State Duma was in the so-called Central Apparatus which is a body which serves Duma per se, not individual deputies or fractions. I was an expert on the analytical department. And this is where I came perhaps closest to the bureaucratic bureaucracy, to the stable part of the apparatus that doesn't change with every convocation and doesn't depend on the will of any particular deputy. So these are the people who sometimes stay in the Duma for decades they may also be met with on the staff of the uh, Duma committees, and they are sometimes people who know their subject best, exactly for the reason that they stay for so long. Um, they are very often consulted on the Uh, subjects of legislation, because they have extensive knowledge, and they have a paradoxical kind of independence, because deputies come and go, but these people remain. Sometimes, by the way, people who, for example, were heads of uh, the committee's uh, apparatuses become deputies themselves, and vice versa. A deputy who loses elections... Such things have happened back then, or were ch- were not chosen by their parties to run for the next uh, convocation. Sometimes they end up uh, on the on the apparatus of the committees. Generally speaking, um, I have met some weird people who were not much good in any sort of job because they just had to be placed somewhere. I remember a former deputy whose only activity seems to be uh, going to a toilet, filling a kettle with water and then coming back and making the kettle boil. I haven't seen him doing much else. Uh, Again, in my personal experience of uh, working with my immediate colleagues or uh, people from the governmental structures uh, or even the presidential administration, although that's rather a different uh, pack of cards, I have not witnessed any signs of the so-called negative selection. Um, Many people were, as I said, working on their subjects for many years, were quite competent. And their motivation would not be called either opportunistic or idealistic. They wanted to do their job. They wanted to stick to the rules. Um, There was not much enthusiasm as far as I have seen it. Enthusiasm was higher up among those people who immediately surrounded, well, the rising political stars of, say, the third convocation or the fourth, those that I have immediately witnessed uh, in the State Duma, because these people had ambitions. They had plans and hopes. They were thinking that their bosses will rise and they will rise with them. So there was there some enthusiasm to be seen. Further on, In the depth of the apparatus, there was rather the desire to do the right thing. I can't say live till the retirement age. Uh, By the way, the the medium age was not that high. It was not a young team, uh, nor was it a a collection of old people just counting the days till till the retirement age (laughs) strikes them. Uh, So it was, um, I think, surprisingly normal. That is nice to hear. Well, Mikhail, your experiences
0: with state system are from much later era. So you can enlighten, um, enlighten us on on what happened afterwards, how things changed.
2: Yeah. Yeah, um, but unfortunately, or not maybe unfortunately, in comparison with this I wasn't an official civil servant. Uh, But since I worked uh, in think tanks that helped uh, reform Russian agencies, I know um, the workings of the Russian bureaucracy quite well. Um, mostly, Mostly, we worked with the top middle level of bureaucracy and mostly with the economical units inside of the Russian uh, system. Uh, But on one occasion, uh, we were so deeply involved in the work of the agency um, that we work closely with the ordinary civil servants too. So uh, a few years ago, uh, so it was 2019, I think, 2019, yeah. Uh, For six months, uh, my main place when I work every morning was the accounts chamber. Accounts Chamber. This is uh, the Russian name of the Supreme Audit Institution. Yeah, so this is a body which need to, which should help other Russian bureaucracy to um, to observe how they spend the money in the right way or not in the right way. <laughs> yeah, and we uh, helped Accounts Chamber uh, to do an internal transformation of the agency to make it more modern. Um, the, to make sure that they use data, scientific met- methods of analysis when they're doing the audits and so on and so forth. Uh, but this transformation uh, also um, uh, cover not only the management level, yeah, but um, also uh, it uh, try. We try to help in transition from the process management, which is called the process management, yeah, to the project management system. So it's quite quite a modern thing. And uh, I can tell one short, maybe funny story uh, from this transformation which I observe. Um One of the measures that we uh, should have uh, supported the transition to this uh, new uh, project management system was to change the working space of the accounts chamber. Yeah. Uh, initially, um, it looks um, both inside and outside like a classic old Soviet building. So the corridors in the building and the offices of the department had red or green carpets, which is quite, um, which is not seen. <laughs> yeah, lots of small offices of the regular staff filled with the folders with papers. On the contrary, um, the heads of the departments had spacious offices with their, um, you know, diplomas and awards on the public display when you when you enter to the. Um, cabinet key you can see it uh, really, really, really well. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, in the cabinets of the head of department, there is uh, the photo of the head of the state, I mean, uh, Vladimir Putin. And in general, all this remind me, uh, not remind me, but, you know, so it remind me how, how the... Um, uh, cabinet uh, looks like in the USSR from the US, from the movies, because I'm not living in the USSR, of course. Uh, but also, uh, also it reminds me not only the USSR, but, you know, some some kind of Chekhov's or Gogol's stories. So the bureaucracy doesn't change on this level. And the similarity was even greater when we tried to change the system. Uh, we tried to make at least one floor, uh, so the council chamber have the 12 floors in their building. So we try to uh, change one floor in more modern way and transfer to this floor some employees of the departments who we called the leaders of the transformation. Um, so the leaders, leaders of the transformation, in other words, uh, is the people uh, who supported it and carry out the changes in their departments. So they use with data, they try to use with data, they try to do the project management system and so on and so forth. And uh, we were surprised when these people uh, who in their words uh, were in favor of changes in auditing and, and other stuff, they tried to bring with all of, with them all their carpets, <laughs> huge desks, huge wardrobes uh, with, um, arch, uh, with documents, with all documents, yeah, that they have never used before uh, to this floor. And in general, these uh, six months of our attempts to transform the account of chamber were quite similar to the (laughs) Chekhov stories. But to be fair, the account of chamber um, is one of the most conservative Russian agencies. So other agencies, uh, which I have visited and which I worked quite closely, like Ministry of Economy or Ministry of Digitalization, are doing much, much better. So mostly um, the economical block of Russian government is quite uh, modern and competent and uh, looks like like ordinary um, Western type of the bureaucracy.
1: Let me put a word in the defense of uh, cozy little cabinets and paper folders and red carpets. In fact, they were quite good to work in. I personally much prefer them to the inhuman open space of the the modern office. At least you could have a door that you could close. So again, something may be said in favor of this arrangement too. Um, I would also add uh, maybe a point about um, Gogol and Chekhov and the, the inheritance of the the old tradition of Russian bureaucracy, all sorts of nonsense are being said about Russian traditions or specific values. And these are usually some things invented on the spot by the speaker of the moment for the needs of the moment. But Russian bureaucracy is actually quite an institution. And it, it may be closer to an actual idea of an institution as understood by political science than many, many other things existent or imagined to exist in Russia. Since Peter I, First, introduce the ranking system. Russian nobility has prided itself not on its birth, like in Europe, but on its rank. That was because this nobility suffered greatly from the repressions of Ivan the Terrible, the consequent time of troubles, and further times till the reforms of Peter I. So it was not a very numerous body. Many people, by the way, were added to it by colonization process, for example, Tatars or Georgians or some of the Caucasian people could become members of Russian nobility. But at the price of serving the state, either in the military or in civil service. So the place in society was dependent, as I said, not on lineage or birth, but on rank. And that rank became something of a fixation for the Russian culture. If you read, for example, classic Russian literature, or if you read biographies of any person of note in our history, you will notice that they were all state servants, military mostly, but also civic servants. There is a famous pronouncement by Nicholas I, the Russian autocrat. Uh, he said, it isn't I who rule Russia. It is um, 30,000 bureaucrats, literally, stolnachalniki." heads of tables, which is exactly what a bureaucrat means. Since then, since that time, these 30,000 people multiplied into something about 3 million people. And I think they may still be said to actually rule Russia. Soviet nomenklatura inherited this Tsarist system and post-Soviet nomenklatura it has very much to do with their Soviet predecessors. In this respect, even personally, there was not that much change. There are studies of this, um, studies coming to the conclusion that the upper layer of Soviet leadership changed, certainly. But the second and third tier remained in place while rising sometimes to higher levels. So nomenclatura survived the upheavals of the 20th century. So quite a lot can be said about the adaptability and resilience of this particular institution. I personally have a suspicion that this is the institution that will possibly survive the personal change, which is coming on in, well, to put it mildly, the next decade. So, again, if we do have an institution in Russia, I would vote for bureaucracy as a rather stable institution, answering to the famous definition of a humanly devised constraint, which is how Douglas North defined institution. So it is something that remains when people change. It is something that is impersonal rather than dependent on personalities.
2: Yeah, I agree. Of course, that the bureaucracy is a real institution in Russia. Maybe one, only one real institution. Yeah, uh, but I think that this is not only the good um, side, as you Katya would like to highlight. Yeah, but this is all the bad side too, which I'm mostly personally stuck with uh, last years before the war. Yeah. So and uh, um, bureaucracy, of course, would like to defense or. Uh, their own, you know, opportunities and resources. And when you try to push them to do something in a new way, um, or you try to push them to, um, uh, to use more um, modern methods of analysis or way of thinking or something like that. So these bureaucracy usually struggle with it and resist it. And they, for example, a lot of people from the accounts of chamber told us when uh, we tried to push them to some, to do something new that okay uh, guys you will the, you would be there for uh, several months or for the half of a year but we were there <laughs> before you <laughs> we were there yeah. after you
1: yeah and we will, we and will stay after you again but what about this di- what about digitalization uh, isn't it going on quite swimmingly reforming russian way of governing
2: Well, the digitalization is um, one of the methods which is really working in the performing, I think, in the reforming and in the performing of the reforms. Uh, Mostly because uh, it needs um, quite new people to do it, because all other. uh, so not so young, maybe, and not so well-competent uh, staff who are who were working in the Russian bureaucracy um, years, yeah, before, in the or in the beginning of 2000s. So uh, it is impossible for them to use the data, for example, and to understand, for example, how the data should be processed for, for, the, for, for the good di- digitalization. And so this is the reason why there is a new wave of the people who involved, uh, in the r- Russian public government system uh, and who is responsible to the dig- digitalization. And this is the reason why, for example, uh, w- how federal tax services is the, the one of the one Russian body who is mm, quite competent and do good reforms, yeah, uh, under now uh, russian prime minister mikhail mishustin but before he was the head of this federal tax services. but not only not not only them but for example rosstat uh,
1: let's let's just underscore let's just underscore that this better performance of the federal tax service entails for example just um taking money sure. from people's bank accounts uh yes for tax purposes and then uh letting them protest if they would or just let things be if they would not which happens in russia quite Often people wouldn't do not like to meddle with the state bodies. So this efficiency has a dark sure. side to sure. it as well, we should remember it. But for the state, of course, it is efficient to get more money than to get less, no matter by what means, no matter but with what degree of legality. And this is why the head of the federal uh, tax service actually became the uh, prime minister of Russia. We'll see if he remains one after the presidential elections, whether his merits will be sufficiently recognized to um, entail a New, uh, new and are uh, in his position, but still. Yeah, from
0: I mean, I observe Russian bureaucracy mostly from the foreign policy angle, um, and I I should definitely say that not all innovations are good. I mean, whatever you think of Russian MFA, and they can drive you crazy with their legalistic argumentation, polished
1: uh,
0: to really masterful levels.
1: But and and they they are also uh, they are supposed, or at least they have the reputation to be that part of Russian bureaucracy which drinks the most. Maybe it is undeserved. Is it so, Kadri? What was your
0: observation? But yes, well, if I drink, and and that really is a rumor about some of them. But I would say that. You know, if you talk with Sergey Lavrov, his memory doesn't show signs of excessive drinking.
1: He, I. Would, he's he's a minister. A minister is not a bureaucrat. He's a politician.
0: Well, he was bureaucrat before that, and I I wouldn't recommend anyone to, to get into factual debates with Sergei Lavrov. No, but my uh, what I was trying to say. Uh, Regardless of what you think of of our institutional culture, I would still any time prefer to more fashionable modern foreign policy methods, uh, such as name-calling in Twitter or all kinds of political entrepreneurship uh, that we have seen practiced a lot by by some Russian citizens as well, hacking and leaking American emails, doing things in in Africa and I I don't think Russian foreign ministry has necessarily approved of it I'm sad that they have not turned out to be the influential side in intra-Russian debates about how to go uh, about its relationship with with the uh, world outside Um, but I think Katerina, you may well be right that when it's all over, then uh, bureaucracy will survive and, and maybe also foreign ministry will will go back to what it has been. How though the question we, um, we, we, we wanted to tackle a little bit, how has the war affected Russian bureaucracy? I mean, it changes all the time. Katerina, I remember listening to your lecture in London where you also outlined some changes to bureaucracy, how the number of people who serve, you know, the sort of head of department is growing and lower levels are shrinking. So in many institutions, I remember very clearly your description, you, you said they, they remind you of a people with big head, thick neck, <laughs> slim legs. But that was when, Uh, back back in probably 2018 again or something. So how
1: has the war affected it? I don't think that this tendency was much affected by the war. The proportion is still, well, disproportional. And for example, (coughs) although the... Uh, Minister of the Interior would not strike you as a typical example of bureaucracy, but with them, with the police, this disproportionality is very striking. And here, war has, of course, dealt uh, a blow, so they don't have enough people on the ground now that some of them, uh, by their own will or by necessity, went to war and were killed or disabled. Uh, And, of course, the upper tier has not suffered in this way, so this thick neck is growing Thicker, while the the legs uh, are growing smaller and smaller and more fragile. Uh, and again, uh, this is this is police. This is not civic bureaucracy, but generally the erosion. Usually goes at the lower level rather than at the higher. The war has not um, resulted in any significant erosion at the top. So it was not like many people have left. Although, although the IT department, or for example, central bank on the Moscow government has suffered greatly because many people have left because of the war and even more because of mobilization. But in terms of personal composition, I don't think that much has changed. Mobilization was a blow, but many ministries, like, for example, the Ministry of Information and Digitalization, managed to defend their staff through guarantees against mobilization. Um Generally speaking, those who have stayed in their places, and that's the majority, have managed to somehow adapt to this new war situation. Uh, What I'm watching is the behavior of regional bureaucracy, which I think played quite a role in keeping the situation on the ground stable, and what is even more important of keeping this picture of business as usual, which is of such paramount political importance, both to Russian leadership and to the Russian people, we see every month uh, how much energy is spent both by the political system and by society in general in pretending that nothing special is really happening. And here, bureaucracy has really been instrumental, both by its regular nature, by the regularity, which is the very soul of bureaucratic work, and by its capacity to continue in the face of, well, external pressure, internal, sometimes very chaotic developments. So for better, for worse, I do think that it was and remains this bureaucracy, specifically civic bureaucracy, uh, financial, economic, block financial economic management, um, people in the economic ministries, and people in the regions and municipalities that have managed to keep the situation at least um, so stable as to produce the impression of stability, which is even more important than reality uh, in the social sphere. Mihail, you are actually doing a research for
0: ECFR about uh, Russian bureaucracy and war. What are your findings?
2: Yeah, uh, but I would like maybe to to start from the development what Kata, um told us. So um, it seems to me that the main thing that we see at the end of the second years of the Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, in the Russian government system, uh, that the Russian state governments is uh, um, in the in the process of the normalization or routinization of the war. On the one hand, uh, the war has become Only, you know, another or next crisis for them. Uh, The Russian economy has been in a state of the crisis and reaction to it since 2008. So like when it was the, uh, the world financial and economical crisis. Then in Russia, there was a crisis in 2014 after the annexation of the Crimea. And then it was the pandemic, and uh, so now uh, there is a new round of crisis. And the bureaucracy treats it exactly as, you know, the, the, the another one bad situation. Yes, of course, it is the biggest and maybe the deepest crisis that they struggle with, but nothing unusual for them. And uh, the, that is why we see that after the shock of the first weeks or maybe even days of the war, Um, the rest of the Russian agencies are working as usual. So they write programs, adopt new budgets, yeah, implement the projects. Um, Only now all these projects maybe are aimed either at increasing Russia's military potential, um, but... um, much more often at mitigation the consequences of the war in the um, some spheres in the various of spheres, economy, social sphere, education, science, industries and so on and so forth. But it is only on the one hand, on the other hand, and of course um, the war was has caused a certain transformation of both the positions of the groups or agencies um, inside of the bureaucratic system itself and the position of the bureaucracy, Inside of the entire Russian elite. And my research, which you refer, Kadri, to, um, I conducted it during this year and a half, and uh, um, after the breakup. Of the war, um, I collect some in-depth, semi-structured interviews with Russian officials, from mostly from the economical ministers, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Economical Development, Central Bank, Ministry of um, uh, Ministry of Digitalization, Federal Statistical Services, something like that, yeah? So these ministers are usually called technocrats in Russia, especially recently, especially last years. Uh, and this word means that they are quite competent in economic management, as Katya Told us and uh, as a rule they were oriented in the development of russia yeah they see the development of russia the role model for them um is the western countries primarily the united states and germany so and i have collected more than uh, 50 interviews with the representative of these groups and the main conclusion that follows from this data uh is that um I see the growing of self-confidence and self-awareness of these group technocrats within the Russian elite. Uh, If before the war they believed that they fulfilled, okay, maybe an important but very limited function um, within the Russian government system, now they see that their capabilities, their opportunities have expanded a lot. And uh, they not only decide, for example, on on a... uh, size of the central bank's key rate yeah but also figure out how not to let the remaining western companies leave russia yeah to doing to, to to make this system uh how it will be working uh they involved in the relaunch of military or war related industries a lot especially the people from the Ministry of Economy and Ministry of Industry. Um, Ministry of Digi- Digitalization create a really large register of Russian conscripts, Yeah, uh, according to the president's decree uh, after the mobilization, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of um, opportunities for them. Uh, there are a lot of new projects uh, that d- demonstrate the new demand of the um, competent Russian bureaucracy to do some related to the war stuff. And this leads to the fact that the group of technocrats, uh, which used to be highly fragmented um, before the war, I mean, so like the rest of the Russian elite, now uh, they develop some kind of group identity, and they hope to play an increasing role within the Russian elite, and they hope that Vladimir Putin... Uh, will give them the opportunity, new opportunities after the present election, which was happen, which will happen in 2024 in the next year. I mean, and one of my respondents in the recent interviews even stated uh, that uh, he believes that uh, for Putin's technocrats are now almost as important as their uh, security agencies as siloviki.
0: So, do you think Greece hopes um, to have a? Because say in the future of Russia will be fulfilled, uh, because we, um, I mean, there are several tendencies I think simultaneously at play. Uh, on the one hand, we have long been expecting Russian system to yeah get a bit more meritocratic, and and then in, in 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 some areas or some levels that is happening. On the other hand, what we also see is that many loyalists are. Um, appointed to key positions and not just loyalists, but actually children of, of current power holders and friends, etc., sort of dynasties of, of of loyalists are handing power over to their young generation. I mean I I see that permanently in in, in in daily news. So I do not know to what extent these tendencies even compete with each other, to what extent they actually complement.
2: I'm not sure that they, they compete with each other because, you know, th- th- it, it is happening in the s- separate levels. So what I'm speaking about, I'm speaking about, you know, the the middle bureaucracy. Yeah, uh, this position is not so interested by the children of the real Russian elite like Patrushev or Kiryenka, so it's they're not so interested in it. Yeah? They're interested in the like a politician level. For example, you know that the son of the uh, Patrushev, who is the head of the, uh, okay, um, who is really in the inner circle of uh, Vladimir Putin, his son is the um, head of the ministry of the. Um, of agriculture, yeah, the minister of agriculture. Thank you, thank you. Okay, yeah. Uh, or for example, um, the son of um, deputy head of the present administration, Sergey Kiryian, yeah, his son now in heritage of the big Russian company, uh, the Russian Facebook, yeah, the Russian, the, the Russian version of the Facebook, Vkontakte. So they are interested in some kind of assets that they. Can be uh, involved more, but the tendency which I try to describe and which I refer to, and uh, uh, according to my research, yeah, which research is devoted to. uh, But it is mostly, uh, mm, it is uh, more or less um, the the systemic. Thing uh, I try to describe the systemic thing, and I think that's okay. Maybe uh, in some level, uh, the top of Russian bureaucrats, uh, r- top Russian technocrats, like, uh, for example, uh, Elvira Nabiullina, who is the head of the central bank, or Anton Siluanov, who is the head of the Ministry of Finance. So maybe they are really uh, so uh, compete with uh, Dmitry Patrushev uh, uh, and uh, Sergey Kiryanka uh, sons uh, to to the positions in the future. But for now uh, they're um, um, competent, um, they compete with each other on a different level.
0: Well, our time is soon running out. The one thing, though, that I would want to still ask um, ver- fairly quickly um, is bureaucrats and the newly conquered territories in, in Ukraine. Um, I mean, some of them have been. Sent to work to, uh, yeah, Herzon, uh or Donetsk, is how is that viewed? Is is that viewed as sort of a huge career opportunity, or 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 an appointment better to be avoided because you might lose your life and and who knows, you know how that will be treated in in the future because the future of these territories should be fairly uncertain even if one looks from Moscow, or am I wrong?
1: Uh, this is actually a very interesting sub-story in the general history of Russian bureaucracy, uh, because in the early days of the invasion, like more than a year ago, it was stated quite openly by Kiryanka and his people that the only Korea lift in Russia right now is lies through the or runs rather through the uh, occupied territories, and that chimed with this general discourse that the new elite is being forged on the battlefield, which sounds Imposing, but actually doesn't seem to be happening. Although, coming back for a moment to the uh, Russian bureaucratic history, which I hope someday will be written, uh, there were precedents. Under Nicholas I, whom I have already cited, there was a career fast track for those who would like to go and serve in Northern Caucasus, which was then the newly occupied territory. So there was even this term, accessory, Caucasian, uh, well, state servants, which was rather an, a, a derisive term for those who made, uh, who jumped through uh, a few steps on this bureaucratic ladder too quickly, so they came there for like three years, and then went back to proper Russia with the newly earned honors. So the same kind of thing was visualized uh, for Donbass, generally. But now more than a year hence, we can see that this doesn't seem to be happening. Well, uh, to be fair, two people, Kiryanka's appointees, went for a few months to, I think, one to Zaporizhia and another to uh, Kherson region, and then came back and were appointed governors, one to Omsk oblast, another to uh, Chukotka. But neither of these positions are that desirable so what the ambitious nestlings of Kiryanka people who went through the leaders of Russia competition and who studied in the school for governance in uh, my former um, university, the Presidential Academy what they want is not going to Chukotka they want Moscow and Moscow Oblast and Nizhny Novgorod and Samara and Saratov or maybe Tatarstan and Bashkortostan places like this and they want places in the government, which they are not getting. So, yes, some people do go to the so-called new territories, quote unquote, in search for higher salaries. The payments are doubled, sometimes trebled compared to those on the mainland rather than for career promotion. So it will better serve your turn to go there as, I don't know, an electric engineer, For example, to the restoration of Mariupol, to work there for for some time, make a bit of money, and then come back before your head explodes, because the Heimer's has landed somewhere near you, rather than to try to make it into a career platform. On the other hand, or rather on the same hand, in its other aspect, people originally from these new territories do not get any careers in Russia. I think, by the way, that um, they won't even become parliamentary members because, look, there are currently in the Federation Council, which we have earlier mentioned, um, people representing the new territories. But one of those people is actually Dmitry Rogozin, who has nothing to do with those territories. Others are from these places, but they are continuously being rebuked for, for example, their uh, politically careless um, legislative initiatives. For example, they proposed as a group uh, for an amendment to the Russian legislation on citizenship, which would allow people to be stripped for of their citizenships because of their political pronouncements, not just those people who have acquired it like themselves, but those who were born with it. And you can't take this sort of citizenship from a citizen, which by the way, creates huge inequality between those who were born to the status and those who have got it. So um, they have um, deleted their signatures from this specific bit of legislation. I've been watching it because it's quite amusing, in fact. So after Klishas, the, the senator Klishas, uh, one, of one of the authors of new Russian constitution and the head of the um, Com- Federation Council Committee on Legislation, came forth and said, you don't do that. You should read our constitution first. They all have deleted their signatures, except one guy from actually from Crimea. So I'm quite looking forward. For example, during the next... Um, renovation in the Federation Council to have those places filled by old timers from mainland Russia, rather than from some misbehaving people from those territories who do not know the rules of the game. So again, it's not much of a career opportunity for anyone, either from Russia who would choose to go to uh, the occupied territories or people from the territories who would imagine, fondly imagine themselves to be now really part of big Russia with all the uh, opportunities it presents. It doesn't seem to be this way in reality.
2: Yeah, I can shortly add shortly add uh, one sentence to what uh, Katya told us. So uh, for me, um, being appointed or been as being to the new uh, occupied territories of Ukraine now uh for representatives of the russian bureaucracy or the representative of russian politicians yeah now it is a way to avoid problems for example criminal cases yeah uh and try to get back on that, on that track like dragozin for example who um katya mentioned uh and yeah this i is, agree this so is,
1: if 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 you don't do well in Russia, if you are in trouble, if you are in, in under threat of criminal prosecution, there is this outlet. You can say, "I will wash off my sins with my blood," and you go there. You stay for a little bit. You demonstrate your patriotism, and then maybe, maybe, uh, you may hope to be forgiven. Uh, Ragozin is one such case. I don't really think... Well, we have, we have, for example, uh, a number of um, mayors uh, who were in prison because mayors are the most downtrodden class of Russian bureaucracy. They're the most often statistically likely to be criminally prosecuted. So there were quite a number of mayors of Russian cities who were in prison and who choose to enlist uh, and go to war. For example, uh, the former mayor of Vladivostok recently declares his determination yeah.
2: uh to mo- go to mo- war. Mostly, but this mostly,
1: again this is not much of a career lift
2: yeah yeah and mostly this is not a career la- lift and it is really connected with the representative of the party United Russia who are mm, their regional regional uh on the regional level or not lim- not only the mayors but the city managers so the people who are not elected mostly in Russia because there are really few few uh russian cities who has now um, a- elected mayors yeah and so this is for them, this is a, a, a way to avoid some problems, not maybe the criminal cases, but, you know, some kind of problems with the other groups in the leads. And they, uh, Katja Wright, would like to uh, go to the new uh, or occupied territories to do some stuff and maybe believe that they can keep on track after that. So,
0: Yeah, so just to our listeners' uh, sake, um, each time we talk about new territories, I can see Mihail imitating quotation marks on the screen. So just for the record, um, none of us here thinks that these are truly new territories of Russia. Um, We all, I think, recognize Ukraine in its 1991 uh, borders, just in case I need to say it. Uh, And now there is one last thing to be done in our podcast, and that is the traditional Bookshelf segment. Um, what are you reading? Good if it is a book about uh, Russian bureaucracy or state system, but any book about Russia would be a good recommendation.
2: So uh, I can I can recommend. I can really recommend. Maybe not so you know <laughs> new book or modern book, but which is really related. To how um, Russian bureaucracy looks like nowadays, too, in my beliefs. So, this is a book from Mikhail Vaslensky, Nomenklatura. This word Katya have already mentioned a few times during our podcast today. And uh, Vaslensky tried to describe, you know, the, the practices which Soviet nomenklatura have had um, in their relationship with the state, in the relationship with each other and other stuff. So, um, and it is interesting uh, when I'm, uh, so I, I'm reading it, uh, I was reading it um, a few years ago when I have already involved and see how Russian democracy works. And it is interesting that uh, I see a lot of in common. When Vaslensky, um, uh, for example, described uh, how the offices of the Russian government looks like, I see the same pictures <laughs> uh, of the offices when I visited. it. Yeah. So, for example, when he described um, uh, the relationship between Mm, uh, and a hierarchy inside of the Soviet bureaucracy, uh, I see the same thing in the Russian bureaucracy nowadays. And so I think this is, which is related to what uh, Katya have already mentioned. I mean, so this is, uh, the bureaucracy is really, Russian bureaucracy now is really something which is a real institution in terms of political economy uh, thing. and I highly recommend to read it as a historical, but not so historical book.:
1: Yes, I could only second this choice. Uh, of course, Waslensky nomenclature is an absolute uh, classic, uh, and it's not very academic. So I think it can, it can be read by anyone who is interested in the subject or who is interested in Russia, because you cannot really understand Russia without understanding Russian bureaucracy. Uh, my book is rather more specific and, you know, um, academic books are expensive, so I'm rather careful at recommending it, uh, but I would like to praise it. Uh, It's a book, uh, a recent publication by Stephen Hall, a political scientist who studies autocracies, and it is called The Authoritarian International, Tracing How Authoritarian Regimes Learn in the Post-Soviet Space. And it is um, based on studies of Russia, Belarus and Moldova. In their interrelated ruling class and in their uh, authoritarian learning, that's the term, uh, borrowing best practices for keeping in power from neighbors. So, this is the book that I'm reading currently. Great.
0: Um, I was thinking what to recommend and then I decided to recommend things that the three of us have written. Uh, First, you should read Mikhail's upcoming paper, upcoming ECFR paper about Russian bureaucracy. We cannot uh, link it yet because it's not yet ready, but I can highly recommend it nonetheless. Secondly, on my bookshelf is a book by Ekaterina. Uh, Practical Political Science, Handbook on Encounters with Reality, I think is a good translation of, of the title. And that is actually a collection of articles uh, from um, earlier on, uh, but it's, it makes really interesting reading nowadays. I skimmed it before our uh, podcast uh, to look, what have we been discussing in, uh, in times past, and what was our notion of the future back then? And finally, if um, if I may recommend the paper by myself, then I would actually give a short <clears throat> uh, plug my paper about Russia's uh, younger generation of of foreign policymakers. Uh, title is the last of the offended Russia's first post-Putin diplomats Uh, Katerina knows it well I interviewed her for that there are a few quotes from her and to me it was really interesting work uh, to understand what that professional class thinks uh, exactly because any any future policy will have some input from them Um, regardless of how politicians change. And now, of course, I think I did. I I researched that paper at the last moment when it was possible. Uh, Soon after that was published, Russia closed down for COVID and then the war. So it wouldn't be possible to do these interviews nowadays. Um, And also my pool of interviewees have now been scattered uh, some of them have left Russia. Others are in Russia, but in a kind of internal exiles. Third type, always doing well under under the Russian regime that there is. Um, but yes, I I often think back uh, to these interviews myself, and I did recommend it also to our listeners. Here we need to finish. Uh, thank you all very much, and. Our next Russia podcast will be back before long.